All right, I don't have as many props as I had last time. Sorry to disappoint everybody here. No, no toy trucks, but uh, <laughs> this should be a really simple lesson. Okay, we're going to be, we're going to be, <laughs> I have skeptics in the, in the room here. But for me, it'll be a simple lesson anyway. But it's, it's going to be a simple lesson, meaning... The points are really simple. We'll be we'll be meandering a few few uh, uh, unusual places, in the scriptures along the way. Why not? But uh, uh, the the we're in the discussion about the tabernacle, and um, so it's it's important. We're building on what we discussed last time, so I want to just remind everybody of some of the foundation that was laid then, because this this is really important to. Uh, understand where this fits in with it. So Moses and Joshua have ascended Mount Sinai. Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's fasting. And he's going to receive the stone tablets for the first time with the Ten Commandments on it. The Lord gives him detailed instructions regarding the tabernacle, which is a portable tent-like structure that the Israelites are going to build. Very, very specific instructions and it will be the center of their community as they're traveling through the wilderness. And then during the time of Solomon, it will be replaced by a permanent structure, a temple located in Jerusalem. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8 to 10, we read a fair amount from there last time, explains the significance of the tabernacle for us, for Christians, what it was foreshadowing. And uh, as we talked about last time, it's a type or a model, kind of like a scale model, of of things in the heavenly realm of spiritual things regarding both heaven and the church and it's also uh, there's a prophetic element that it's telling things that are going to happen in the future so uh, everything's very purposeful in the design of it and uh, it's so it's 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 about heaven we see we learn about heaven we learn about the sacrifice of jesus we learn about the church we learn about ourselves what god wants us to be doing too which is what we're going to focus on in this particular lesson. So, what we discussed last time, from based on what it says in Hebrews, not based on my opinion, it's, it's explained in Hebrews that the high priest foreshadowed Jesus, who is our high priest. Uh, it says in Hebrews uh, 4 uh, that, um, see that seeing that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, so Jesus is the high priest, and the most holy place, so you have the tabernacle, there are two rooms, there's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place where the, the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, Hebrews 9, it says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the idea is that the most holy place was the place where the Jewish high priest only went, and he would go once a year with blood. That was foreshadowing heaven itself, where Christ went with his own blood once for all time. The mercy seat, so the the Ark of the Covenant, it's a wooden box covered inside and outside with gold. It's a box in which the Ten Commandments were stored, and, and some other things are mentioned there also. On top of the box was a gold, was a solid gold cover with two cherubim on two angels with their, their wings overshadowing the, the cover. And this is referred to as the mercy seat. 
And uh, God says that when he spoke, he would speak from there. And it speaks several places in the Old Testament. We talked about this, about God sits enthroned above the cherubim. So the picture here is this is like the throne of God, representation of that. Um, and then the, there's a veil between the most holy place and the holy place, which is referred to in, in Hebrews 10. It says, now, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So the veil represents the body of Christ, which, as we talked about, it says in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus died, the temple of the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the separation between heaven, the presence of God, and and all the rest of us. Now, we can enter the most holy place. So the death of Jesus opened up access to the Father for us and opened up the way to heaven. So, um, And then we talked about the temple, the tabernacle layout, which is really going to, we're going to focus on this time. So this is a picture I showed last time here, my little artwork, okay, for everybody to see. and basically, the, it's a th- three to one geometry. This is 30 cubits by 10 cubits. And the most holy place is 10 by 10 by 10 cubits high. A cubit is about a foot and a half or half a meter. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant with the poles through the rings. Then there was the veil. And then outside, there are three things. This is, it's very important to visualize this for what we're going to talk about today. So the, on the north side, you had the table of the showbread. On right before the veil uh, uh, leading the way into the most holy place, you had the altar of incense, and on the south side, you had the lampstand. So, just three things in there. And then the priest would enter from the east side, and then the high priest once a year would enter into, into there. So, just that's what I want to focus on. We're, last time, we we're talking about the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the veil representing heaven. And I want to talk about the holy place. And this is actually very practical for us. Um, So, um, and then outside of the... Okay, I said I didn't bring any... I didn't bring any toy trucks, but I brought my other props this time. So So outside of the tabernacle in the courtyard... You had two things in front of the tabernacle. You had two things. One was the, the laver, which was a washing basin where the priests would wash initially and then before they would go in and minister in the tabernacle. And then the other thing that would be the bronze altar. And so since there are two altars, the one in the courtyard is referred to as the bronze altar. That's where they would sacrifice the animals. And the one inside the tabernacle is referred to as the golden altar, which is the altar of incense. Okay, so you have two altars. Now, the nice way to keep everything straight also is everything in the t- inside the tabernacle is gold. It's, it's either gold on the inside and outside or it's solid gold. Everything's gold. All the, all the main articles there are gold. All the... The uh, utensils that are used to serve them are gold, um, and then the the uh, in the courtyard it's bronze. So is it, the idea is that there, as you're getting closer to the presence of God, you're getting more precious metals involved here, uh, reflecting the holiness of God. So I want to talk about the three items that are in the holy place where the priests minister. There's a golden altar of incense, the table of showbread and the lampstand with the seven lights on it. So that's going to be the focus of 
the, the text we're looking at today. Now, a little bit about the priests who would, just like I said, if you understand that the most holy place represents heaven, all the other pieces fit together. So that, in this lesson, if you understand the priests and who they represent, all of, all of this will be easy to understand and will all fit together too. And, and, and um, so a little bit about the priests, just to explain. The, the, the high priests and all the priests were from the tribe of Levi. So they were descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses, who, who was the first high priest. The priests were males only, and they only served from the age of 25 till the age of 50. And after 50, they, I guess they, it's, it, the implication, maybe they're consultants, but they don't actually do the hard work of, you know, they were, you were lifting and carrying things, and you were, you were d- doing the work of the ministry. So they would take a step back. So they were only in active duty until the age of 50. Talks about that in Numbers chapter 8. And the priest's role was they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So they, they would minister in the temple, they'd offer sacrifices of animals, things like that. And uh, in Leviticus, it talks about all different types of sacrifices that they would offer. And it mentions there several places that. The priests, in, in accepting and offering the sacrifices for se- several of the different sacrifices, they could eat part. They were allowed to eat part of the sacrifice. And I'll uh, let, let's look at a few examples. Leviticus chapter six. This is going to actually tie into something significant for us. Leviticus chapter six, verses seven to nine, about the grain offering. Now this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it in front of the altar before the Lord. He shall take it from a handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and frankincense, which is on the grain offering, and offer it on the altar of the burnt offerings for a sweet aroma, a memorial to the Lord. Then Aaron and his sons shall eat what is left. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of testimony. So they offer the grain offering. The priests get to eat the leftovers, all right? So that that's that's what they uh, that's what they do. Uh, and then another example in, in uh, verses seventeen, verse seventeen in the same chapter, Leviticus six. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Now this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the whole burnt offering is killed." They shall kill the sin offering before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the courtyard of the uh, tabernacle of the testimony. So the grain offerings and also the animal offerings, the the meat offerings, that for certain of the offerings that the priest was allowed to eat. In some cases it would explain he could eat certain parts of the animal. So so that's the idea. And this was only the priests could eat this. So... Leftovers would would not go. You you couldn't if you weren't a priest. You you couldn't eat this. Uh, so uh, uh, now, so so this is important when we think about what it says in Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter thirteen. So remember Hebrews. It talks about Hebrews chapters eight, nine, and ten. Talks about the parallels, the foreshadowing, the typology. Uh, 
with the tabernacle for for us and for what's happened to Christ, the things that the things in the tabernacle that represent other things. So think about the priests and who they represent with that in mind. Hebrews chapter thirteen. Starting in verse 9. It's the close of Hebrews. Do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought in the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So so who are the priests representing? The priests are representing us. Okay, The high priest is Jesus, and the priests are foreshadowing us. And it says, actually... We are eating from an altar like they were. We're eating from an altar that's a better altar that they don't have the right to eat from. All right? So we are priests who are eating from a greater altar. And then it says that Jesus sacrificed himself and bore reproach. So we should follow his example and be willing to do the same thing. We should be willing to sacrifice and suffer reproach. Um, having a conversation uh, with uh, Candace on the way in this morning talking about what's going to happen in this country and basically are we about to face severe persecution for Christians and I you know talking to Christians who live in other parts of the world I'm painfully aware of the severe persecution that uh, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, in the Middle East and the Far East, are facing in the countries that they're in. We really haven't seen that in this country for the last few hundred years. Government's pretty much left the Christians alone. It's enshrined in the First, First Amendment, the freedom of religion. But that could all change very soon in the West. So we should be mindful of, of, of warnings like this, that Christ suffered for our behalf, and he bore reproach, and we should be prepared to do the same thing if necessary. That's one of the points that he's making. But he's using this picture. He says, we are priests who get to eat from a better altar that they they are not qualified to eat from. And he he says some other things about the priesthood that we're a part of. He says here in verse 15 and 16 that we are called like they offered sacrifices, and they ate from the altar, we are called to offer sacrifices as well. Not only the sacrifice of ourselves, but in verse 15 he says, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So we should be 
our sacrifice is thanking God continually for the many blessings he has given us on, on all fronts and praising, praising God's name. So we should be doing that, offering that sacrifice in our priesthood. And then the other thing he says in verse 16, he says, don't forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So what kind of sacrifice is God looking for from us? Not, not killing animals and spilling their blood and burning them. He's looking for sacrifices of us sharing of our substance with those who are in need. So that's the kind of priest and those are the kind of sacrifices that we have. So I think he's talking, about, he's talking about the altar that we have to, to, to take from. I think he's talking about when we take the Lord's Supper, that we are participating in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are, we're, we're in a sense, participating in a, in a priestly ministry and, and taking from the altar. Um, and this imagery of, of us being priests serving in a, in a tabernacle, Paul uses this imagery in Philippians, in um, Philippians 4, verse 18, think about this. He says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. So they were sacrificing and giving to Paul... <clears throat> Out of, out of their means, and Paul refers to this as this is, a, as this is the language of the sacrifice of the priest in the Old Testament. This is a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. These are the kind of sacrifices that we are to be offering today. Peter uses this imagery of us being priests serving, at, at, serving in the tabernacle as well. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Think about how Peter is framing the argument of everything that follows here. First Peter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And he, he goes on uh, uh, from there, and he says, and, and verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He goes on from there to talk about, as members of a holy priesthood who are making spiritual sacrifices to the Lord, as members of a royal priesthood who have been called out of darkness into his light, he then goes on to say that we should be denying the flesh, the, the, the impulses of the flesh, 
the lustly, the, the fleshly lusts which war against our soul, as, as, as members of this priesthood, we should do that. He says we should submit to the governing authorities. Slaves should submit to their masters. Wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands should be kind and gracious to their wives. Uh, Christians should be blessing and forgiving one another as, as they were forgiven. Uh, let's, let's close. Let, let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. It's all building on this foundation. It says, Husbands likewise dwell with them, they're referring to their wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So these are priests who are also offering up prayers to God. And he says, if you want to be effective priests whose prayers are not hindered, then you need to be, for husbands, you need to be kind towards your wives and understanding and giving them honor. Verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days, let him let it his, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who who do evil. So uh, this is this is the picture here. We are priests that are offering prayers up to God and the God's eyes and ears are open to the prayers of the righteous who are, who are crying out to him. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, he continues the same argument. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of man, but for the will of God. So this is the picture here, is that we are priests. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices to do it willingly, to be willing to suffer unjustly, to return good for evil, to seek peace, to live righteously, abstain from the lust of the flesh, follow the example of Christ who offered him, him, him his own body and suffered for us, coming out of darkness and into light, and then offering righteous prayers to the Lord. So this is the picture of what the priests are doing. I want you to keep that in mind as we look at the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle to see what they were occupied doing. I think it's all the same things that Peter is talking about here. Uh, so with that as, a, as a, a background for why this matters to us, now let's dive in to the, to the, uh, the sanctuary description. Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 23. So he starts start off with the, we're going to look at all three articles in the holy place. First thing we're going to look at is the table for the showbread. Verse 23. You shall also make a golden table of pure gold. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, 
a cubit and a half its height. You shall make for it golden wreaths twisted all around. It also shall have a crown of a handbreadth all around. You shall make a twisted wreath of gold for the crown all around. You shall make four golden rings for it and put the rings on the four corners of the four legs under the crown. The rings shall be bearings for the poles so they may bear the table with them. You shall make the poles of incorruptible wood and overlay them with pure gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, censers, bowls, and cups of pure gold that you may offer drink offerings with them. And you shall set the bread of the table before me continually. So, a few things to notice. One is, everything's gold. All right? <laughs> the, uh, it's uh, incorruptible wood, but everything is, everything's made of gold, including the, all the utensils associated with this. Uh, and from other passages of scripture that describe this as well, we know it's located on the north side of the room. It goes into details here to say that it's going to be carried by poles and rings, meaning they don't want this to be handled, um, and uh, a meaning that it's going to be—it's not going to be carried around in a cart. It's going to be, be carried by the by the priests. It's going to be carried by the uh, the, the Levites uh, by men. And then other passages of Scripture talk about this, that they are to lay out bread on this table. It's 12 loaves of bread. And they lay it out every Sabbath. And then the next Sabbath, they replace it with new, right out of the oven, hot, warm, warm bread. Brand new bread. They put new bread out there, and then the old bread is taken away, and guess what happens to it? It gets eaten by the priests. The, the, the priests eat the one-week-old bread of the presence. So the bread is put there before God. And uh, think about this. Why would God want to have bread getting stale, sitting there for a week, and then getting taken away? And, and why would he be so specific that this has got to be in, in the room? God doesn't eat bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's obvious not eat. God doesn't eat bread. He doesn't do things like that. And and the bread's still there at the end of the week, and they got to replace it, and they have to keep it there permanently. Why does God always need to have bread there? There's some there's something, there's a reason for this, which is not apparent in this story right here. We've got to think, I want to think think about that, just to, to plant that question in your mind. Um, this story, this 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 arrangement here becomes significant later on in a kind of an odd detail in the life of David. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. In the, uh, if you have a Bible based on the Septuagint, it's, it's First Kingdoms. In appreciation for the, the showbread here, it, it, and Jesus talks about the story too. In 1 Samuel, or 1 Kingdoms 21, starting in verse 1. This is, of course, from the life of David. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Now David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest. This is, this is while Saul is still the king. And Abimelech was astonished when he met him and said to him, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So David said to the priest, Today the king gave a command to me, saying, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I command you. And I gave orders to the young men to go to a place called the faithfulness of God, Falani uh, Alemani. 
Now, if there are five loaves under your hand being ready, give them into my hand. And the priests answered David and said, There are no common loaves of bread on hand. There is holy bread, but only if the young men have been keeping themselves from women will they, will they eat. Then David answered the priests and said to him, Truly, we have kept ourselves from women for three days with all the young men having been purified when I came on the journey. Even so, this expedition itself is unclean. Thus, because of my weapons, it shall be sanctified this day. So Abimelech, the priest, gave him the showbread, for there were no loaves there except the bread of the presence, which had been removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So this is the story here, and then... At Matthew chapter 12, Jesus talks about this. Jesus is criticized for his disciples plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. That they, they, the, the accusation is that he's violating the Sabbath. And he comes back and he talks about this story from David. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. So, uh, as Jesus says, <laughs> it doesn't mention this in the story in, in, uh, in Samuel, that uh, the priest says, well, I've only got the five loaves of bread, but if, you're, if you've been clean, you can eat it. And Jesus says here, which is agreeing with Moses, actually, this is unlawful for you to eat this bread, according to the law of Moses, only for priests. That David wasn't a priest. He wasn't descended from Levi. And, and, of course, his men weren't either. So, so, uh, so, so this, this is, it gives you a picture of how this worked. This was strictly reserved for the priests. However, uh, this was a deviation here that took place, and Jesus used it to defend himself, that perhaps God was going to be, had, had plans, he was foreshadowing to open up this, this bread to a wider circle of people in the future. So, uh, so anyway, that, that's the first thing is the table of the showbread. I want to look at the significance of all three later, but I just want to take each of the parts uh, in turn. The lampstand. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 31. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold, which shall be hammered, hammered work. Its shaft, branches, and bowl, and its stem and corolla shall be of one piece. Six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches out of the other. Three bowls shall be made like almonds on each branch, and its ornamental knobs and lilies, and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almonds, and each with its ornamental knob and lilies." There should be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. 
You shall make its seven lamps, and you will lay the lamps upon them. From this one presence they will shine outward. You shall make its funnels and dishes of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So, and I want to, in connection with that, I want to read uh, from Exodus chapter 27, starting at verse 20. It talks about the oil that will be used. These are oil lamps. The oil will be used in the lamp, starting in verse 20. In Exodus 27, you shall also command the children of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the lights to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of testimony outside the veil before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be an ordinance forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So let's let's put this together. So this is uh, the lampstand is to be hammered out of one single piece of gold. Alright? It says it's one talent of gold. Now, being a curious person, I wonder how much is a talent and how much would that cost? How, how expensive is this light? Talent is about 75 pounds. Okay, roughly. 75 pounds. Um, or uh, 34 kilograms if you're thinking metric. Uh, and, and when it comes to gold... Gold is generally quoted in troy ounces. So this is about 1,100 troy ounces of gold. And gold is, uh, uh, gold, uh, currently at, at this time, gold is, uh, is pushing about $1,900 an ounce. Uh, I heard an economist say that, that uh, g- the price of gold is like the canary in, in the coal mine for an economic system. If the price is going up, uh, then that's an indication that something's not good, and I think that the canary is not doing doing too well these these days. So price of gold's been going up. Who knows what it's going to be next year? But currently it's ninety nineteen hundred dollars. So maybe a time when people are looking back saying, "Can you imagine nineteen hundred dollars? It's now five thousand dollars now." But uh, so this is in current dollar, in current um, a quantity, and you can figure it out at any time based on the current value of gold. It's about two million dollars. This is a $2 million lamp for people who are former slaves out in the wilderness. So when, when, the, when the Jews left and they asked for uh, all kinds of goods from their Egyptian uh, neighbors and they showered them with all kinds of gifts, uh, uh, they had at least $2 million worth of gold. And this is just for the lamp sand. All the other things are gold that are in there as well. So, so this is a pretty amazing lamp. Uh, that the God insists there. So he's, he's even insisting about not only material, but also the quantity. It's a $2 million lampstand. So, and also there are seven lamps. So there, there, there's three on one side, three on the other, and then one in the middle. And uh, there are knobs and things like that. And then there are little, it sounds like they're little oil reservoirs that with, with channels that lead up to the lamps. So it's, uh, but that, you get the picture. It's a, it's a, it's a seven lamp lampstand one in the middle three on either side on the branches and they will be lit by the priests and maintained each night in the holy place um, all right so that's the lampstand we'll talk more about that later but just just important to get the details down gold seven um, very valuable and then the third thing 
that's there is the altar of incense. And uh, unfortunately for me, that's not covered until Exodus chapter 30. So I'm going to take this out of order because I want to talk about all three together. Because if you want to understand the ministry of the priest, you have to look at all three of these things in the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 1. This is the third, the third piece of, of uh, the third furnishing in the holy place. Now you shall make an altar of incense, of incorruptible wood. You shall make it a cubit in length and a cubit in width. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay its grating, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. You shall make for it a rim of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molded rim on both its sides. You shall place them on one of its two sides and they will be holders for the poles with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of incorruptible wood, overlaying them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the Ark of the Testimonies, where I will make myself known to you. Aaron shall burn on it fine compounded incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. When Aaron lights the lamps in the evening, he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or an offering made by fire or a sacrifice, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. Now Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year, purging it with blood of purification throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay, so the... The golden altar of incense, and then in verse uh, 34, it talks about the incense itself. Let's jump down to there, Exodus 30, 34. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, scacte and ancha, and sweet galbanum, and pure frankincense. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these perfumed incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, mixed, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine, and put some of it before the testimonies of the tabernacle of testimony, where I will make myself known to you. It shall be a most holy incense to you. You shall not make any for yourselves according to this composition. It shall be to you a holy thing for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. So this is um, very specific instructions regarding this altar of incense. So it's to be made of incorruptible wood and gold. Uh, again, there are going to be rings and poles for carrying it around. It's going to be carried by, by uh, the Levites. It's going to be located right in front of the veil that is before the Ark of the Covenant. And there's special incense to be burned on it. Special formula of incense that's going to be used only for this purpose. You can't use any other type of incense. And you can't sacrifice anything else on this altar. No drink offerings, no animal sacrifices. This is only for burning this particular type of incense. That's it. And once a year, it's going to be spiritually cleansed by the high priest with blood, this, this, uh, this altar. Um, now, this actually, uh, this, this altar of incense shows up in the New Testament 
in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. And I think this is a pretty cool story. Luke chapter 1. Give you an idea of how this is here. So here we are, 1,400 years later, in the, te- in the temple before the time of, of Jesus. And Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went to the temple of the Lord. Of course, this is talking about Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist. And the whole multitude of people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? From an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you'll be mute, not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which were fulfilled, which will be fulfilled in their own time. The people waited for Zechariah and marveled. He lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he couldn't speak to them. And they perceived he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So this is the, here he was. He was was a priest, and it was his turn, and he's there at the time of the evening sacrifice, offering incense on the altar, and, and an angel appears to him as he's in the holy place performing this ministry. So uh, uh, Moses, this is this is the scene for a tremendous, significant announcement and angelic appearance here. Uh, so we have the three, the three things in the holy place where the priests would go to minister. We have the, uh, we have the, the, the table of showbread. We have the lampstand. We have the altar of the incense. So what's the significance for us if we are? The priests of God now that are that are serving. Jesus is the high priest and we are God's priests. What were these priests doing and what are we supposed to be doing? What is this foreshadowing that's significant for us? So what do all these three things represent? So I'm going to start with the easy one. I'm going to take the easiest one first and we'll work from there. The altar of incense. Uh, in Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, I think most of us know what this is referring to. Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, and the Septuagint is Psalm 140. Uh, let's turn there. Psalm of David, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, in most Bibles, O Lord, I have cried to you, hear me. Give heed to the voice of my supplication when I cry to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. 
So David, David's starting off his prayer and he's praying, may my prayer be like incense before you. And, you know, the note in my Bible, I don't know if it's true or not, but it makes sense. It says that this is the, this is, they would, the, the Psalms were songs and this is the song that people would sing at the time of the evening sacrifice when they would also be burning the incense. May my prayers be so. And so this is the scene. Zechariah is in there. People may have been singing this very song here. And he's lighting the incense, and he's praying, and they're all praying. So the, the, the idea of prayer and incense, the, the picture is you, you burn incense, and the smoke kind of goes up and ascends to God. And, and in, the, in the picture of the temple is, you know, there's the throne room of God behind the veil. And you're burning incense, and some of the incense is going around and through the veil and seeping into the, 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 where the most holy place where God is. Uh, so it's, it's a perfect picture of prayer. Our prayers are like, may, may, my, may my prayer be like incense. Uh, and Revelation, there are two or three references. Revelation chapter 5, uh, verse 7, it talks about, uh, uh, let, let's read Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. Let's read that. The significance of the altar of incense, it's our prayers. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 7. It says, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the stroll and open the seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. So this is, again, this is the idea that we are, you have made us, the Levites were the only people, only the Jews and only the Levites among the Jews. He says, no, you've made us priests from every nation and from every tribe. We are your priests. And, and you see, you see the, 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 the 24 elders have the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints going up before the throne of God, the picture there. Revelation chapter 8, uh, similar, similar reference. Um, Malachi 1 says that, uh, Malachi uh, chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations. So I think this is Revelation. What we see is God making priests of all nations and the incense but going up before the throne of God. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 1 about the Gentiles, that they would become priests of God, offering incense as well. So the link between incense and prayer, to me, is a lock. It's a very strong one, incense, the prayers of the saints. So significance of the altar of incense. One of the three things the priests should be doing, prayer. Second, the lampstand. I tell you, I start with the easy one. We're going to work from there. Lampstand, I'm taking that one second. So the lampstand at night is giving light into 
the holy place. Remember, there's, there's four layers of covering over the top of the tabernacle. So this is a dark area, and so the, the, the lampstand is giving light. Why seven, and, and why is it in there? Why does God insist on that being in there? Now think about, what do you think about in connection with light? Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So this is, I think about that in connection with light. Uh, there's several other references in John elsewhere in the New Testament about Jesus, Jesus' light, bringing light. Uh, but not only is Jesus the light of the world, what does he say about us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men uh, uh, put, put a lamp under a bushel. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, Paul in Philippians 2.15, he says that you may become blameless and harmless, children without, of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in whom you shine as lights in the world. So Jesus is the light that came into the world. He says, we are to be the light of the world. Well, it says while he's in the world, he's the light of the world. When he's not in the world, it implies that we're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to be uh, lights that reflect his light. So there's this Jesus, the light of the world. There's the Christians, the light of the world. Uh, but there's another uh, connection here that I want to point out that I, I personally I think is, is even, even more compelling. Uh, several of the early Christian writers connect the fact that there are seven lamps and not one to the Holy Spirit. Now, why the Holy Spirit? Revelation 1.4 says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace in him who is and was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. What are the seven spirits before his throne? There's some, some translation of the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Okay, that this, is, this is the idea is, well, what's the, the connection between the Holy Spirit and seven? Well, what's that all about? Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, in the Septuagint, which is what Jesus and the apostles are quoting from, with, with the early Christian writers pretty clearly are quoting from as well, it talks about the Spirit of God would descend on the one who would come from Jesse. And it describes the spirit that would descend on him, which was fulfilled in the baptism of Jesus, mentioned in all four Gospels. And it says it's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and godliness. There are three pairs. It says, and the spirit of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, number seven. So there are seven characteristics that are mentioned there. And several other Christian writers point this out. Well, this is the Holy Spirit. There's seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, when he talks about the seven spirits before the throne of God, or the sevenfold spirit before the throne of God, or this lampstand that gives light that has seven lamps on it, they saw as representing the Holy Spirit. So, whether the light represents the Holy Spirit who is lighting our way, and who was with us and guiding us during our ministry, 
or whether it's a reflection that we are to be the light of the world, that Jesus himself was the light of the world, or maybe it's all three of them, they're all connected to each other. I don't know. But this is one of the three. And then the last one is the table of showbread. Now, Jesus in John 6, we read this as we're uh, with the Lord's Supper recently. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread which came down from heaven, which if a man eats, he may live forever. This bread was eaten by the priests once every week. It was taken down on the Sabbath and replaced and then eaten. So the priests would eat the bread once a week. Does that make you think of anything? (laughs) Okay. Jesus is the bread of life. We are members of the priesthood. We eat from an altar that those priests don't have the right to partake of. Okay? And then there's also the idea of bread is that that one of the things that God calls us to do is to be meeting the needs of the poor around us, to be to be feeding the hungry. Uh, you know, the the, the in the story of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, is that they're the ones who the ones who, who fed who fed the poor. So, in the picture of the tabernacle, it's significant to me because if I understand, all right, Jesus is the high priest, but this isn't just about Jesus. This is also about the priests as well. And I am called, as Peter said, as Paul said, as the Hebrew writer said. I am called to be a priest. That changes everything. What does the priest do? Priest needs to be living a holy life. The priest needs to be making sacrifices, and these are different types of sacrifices. Peter talks about this. We're to be making a sacrifice, sacrificing of repenting, of turning away from the sins of the flesh, of resisting Satan sacrificing of helping to meet the needs of other people around us okay sacrificing praising uh, the offering the fruit of praise to God and thanksgiving to God as it talks about in, in Hebrew so we are to be we are to be sacrificing we are to be offering we are to be lighting the lights that illuminate a dark place a dark world and we are to be taking the Lord's Supper. We are to be devoted to the body of Christ. Give us each day our daily bread. And and, and just like the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking bread and prayer. So we, we, we gather together on the first day of the week to take the Lord's Supper to celebrate the body and blood of Christ, which sustains us every week. We are the priests that eat from the bread every week. And then, finally, we are to be devoted to prayer. When the apostles delegated the work out to the seven deacons in the book of Acts, they said, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how important prayer is. They said, this is prayer, ministry, and word. That's what we need to be devoted to. And as priests of God, we need to be praying to God and praying with what Peter talks about, righteous hearts before the Lord, and that we are priests that God will listen to, or that his ear will be open to our prayer, to our cries to him. But we need to be priests who are offering the incense morning and night of constantly praying to the Lord. So this is a beautiful picture of the role of the priest. 
and uh, the, offering the sacrifices and, 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 and cleansing himself before he goes in. And, and, and these three things here. So I hope that this is helpful to give you a picture. And if you see yourself as a priest, it will change the way you live. Amen.